We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. on the cat i mean you can for certain things sure and occasionally we do but like uh-huh. if you're as long as you're using like a knife it's it's very hard to eat on the sofa well, you just put it on your lap and you just cut it what's the big Get deal food everywhere you're not well if yeah if you cut it like a baby maybe you know maybe it's just because you have a bigger lap than i do that feels like a very <laughs> like unstable surface Anyway, <laughs> dude, <laughs> welcome to reread <laughs> the podcast where we uh, reread books we read when we were younger, uh, eighteen and under children, and uh, see if they hold up, see if our feelings on them changed. And today we are talking about the book that I think every um, American high school student has to read, mm-hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. I don't know, because I know at least early in its history, there's a big push to ban it in high schools. And I don't know if that's still the case. I'm sure there's some well, random county out there that is trying to bend this book along with Harry Potter and the adventures of Huckleberry Finn and yes. all those other books. Okay, I do actually have information about this. Oh. But Wikipedia says, and they have a source, so I assume it's correct. <laughs> uh, in a 2008 survey of uh, books read by students between grades 9 and 12, so high school, in the U.S., this was the most widely read book in those grades. Ah. That said, it is how also, um, I believe, on the list of most banned books, although I can't actually find that statistic right now. But yes, I know it's also been banned for various reasons, and I think we'll get into that some. There's kind of a new push going now, not necessarily to ban it, but to maybe be teaching something different in high school. And I'm sure we'll talk about that quite a bit, seeing as we both read this in high school ourselves. This goes with our last episode. As I said then, there were four books that I read in my freshman year of high school English class. One per quarter. Yes. So I was 14 years old when I read this for the first time. And I have a lot of thoughts on where it was positioned in my high school reading experience. Oh, I guess I should also say I really enjoyed it when I first read it. It was my favorite book of those four that we read freshman year. That said, the competition was Of Mice and Men, (laughs) Romeo and Juliet, and Cyrano de Bergerac. So the competition was not stiff. Like (laughs) It was not a hard battle for To Kill a Mockingbird to win. But I returned to my reread with that sort of residual fondness. But before I get into how I feel about it now, what what were your initial experiences with this book? Yeah, well, the funny thing is, I know that a lot of my classmates loved this book, and I certainly liked it at the time, but I really didn't, I didn't remember too much about it upon this reread. And I think a part of that, and this is, as you said, this is something that we'll get into, but a part of it is that when we talked about it, like, I certainly, I remembered Tom Robinson, the whole court scene, but... I don't really remember what kind of emotional resonance that had on me. I don't know if this is really, if this is necessarily going to be something we'll talk about. But I was thinking about that. And something occurred to me 
which is that from middle school on, and this is including my time in undergrad and grad school, Mm -hmm. every single English teacher I've had, with the exception of three, have been white. Ah. And and two of the exceptions were creative writing classes. So I'm not sure if that necessarily even counts in this all. Mm -hmm. Because, like, I don't remember the discussion, I guess, about race that happens in this book. I don't really remember that making much of an impact on me as a kid. And I wonder if that's in part because, I mean, one, because I grew up in San Luis Obispo, which is just a sleepy suburb town where this this kind of thing doesn't happen there. But also, I wonder if it's just that like my white teacher didn't really know how to talk about it with mm. 14, 15, 13, 12, however old we were, year olds, you know. <laughs> Certainly upon rereading this book, I was like, damn. Because, <laughs> 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 oh, it it is still so relevant. And that is mm. very depressing. I agree with you. Like I, okay, again, we spent an entire quarter on this book and I do not remember what we did. <laughs> like, I don't have any memory of how this was discussed in class. In fact, all of my memories of this book are like me reading it. And then my family and I all watched the movie adaptation together, which I highly recommend. Not just, I know everyone's like, oh my God, Gregory yeah, yeah, yeah. Peck, the courtroom scene, iconic. Yes, of course. Name of God. The moments of humor in the movie, there's some that like we still <laughs> crack up at, me and my family. There's this, uh, the moment where Jem is running back from the Radley house and he has to like get out of his <laughs> pants and leave them behind. In the movie, the little kid actor who's so cute, he's like, <gasps> My britches! <laughs> <laughs> and it's just this terrific line read. Occasionally, like, me and my sister will just be like, My britches! <laughs> it seems that Morgan has slightly misremembered this scene. The My britches line occurs much later in the film, and it is far less dramatic than Morgan suggests here. You know, something else I never told you about that night I went back to the Radley house. Something else. You never told me anything about that night. Huh? You know, the first time when I was getting out of my britches? Uh-huh. Ah, the frailty of childhood memory. Which is fitting, given an argument that Morgan makes later, which, well, you'll see. And then last year, like <laughs> before COVID hit, my family and I got to see the uh, Sorkin adaptation play on Broadway, which was really good. Um, that said, it was very Sorkinized. Um, <laughs> and I think that one of the things it did, and I think one of the things I really discovered rereading this, is that in pop culture or like in our general cultural consciousness, there's this idea that this book is like very black and white in terms of like morality (laughs) like you know Atticus is everything good yes which was part of the pushback when Go Set a Watchman was released side note here to say that you should not buy Go Set a Watchman or read it there's been a lot of discussion about a it's not actually a sequel 
it was a very early draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and two, there's been a lot of evidence that uh, Harper Lee was taken advantage of and she never wanted to publish this. And the publisher was essentially greedy, took advantage of her in her old age. But <laughs> because the depiction of Atticus in that is less like he's this amazing, spectacular guy, a lot of people were very upset. And I think that what the Sorkin play very much plays that straight in that, like, yes, Atticus is wonderful and amazing. Bad characters are just bad. And, like, you know, it's very clearly delineated. Versus I think the book, like, what I really realized rereading it is how much, like, I don't think we talk enough about this book as a book with an unreliable narrator. It's being narrated by a child. Like, Scout doesn't fully understand what's going on in many situations and has a much more black and white view of things because she's a kid. But there's enough there if you read between the lines to understand that, like, it's not as simple as the narrative might be saying. Um, And I think that was really something I love discovering on this reread is how much depth there is to this book. And that's part of why I'm kind of sad that it's being assigned to ninth graders because I think that it would actually <laughs> ninth graders are be more helpful. Yes. <laughs> right. And like, that's the age at which like, I, I remember that a big thing in my junior year of high school was like, my teacher was really trying to get us to um, understand satire. I was like, yes, of course, I understand this is satire. Like I read satires before. And so therefore was had a leg up. But a lot of other people in my class, and I was in an AP, like an advanced placement class, they didn't get satire. They couldn't understand what something was satire. So it's like that same thing with unreliable narrators. I think the older you get, the more you learn to recognize that and to read between the lines. But I think this book doesn't benefit from being read by, you know, 14, 15 year olds. I think it would be much better, like, you know, senior year in the hands of 17, 18 year olds. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I think a lot of people want to give this book the green book treatment and be like, ah, yes, Atticus solves racism and everything ends happily ever after, which is not at all supported by the by the book at all. I mean, I feel like, and we can get into this more, but I feel like Scout is a relatively reliable narrator. Obviously, she's talking about her memories as a kid, and there are certain things that either get get left unsaid or, you know, she only hears parts of it and doesn't really make sense of it. But certainly as older readers, we can pick up on those nuances and infer certain things. What I really love about this book is that a book like this is very susceptible to being like, ah, yes, and this is how we solve racism. Mm. Uh, this book doesn't, doesn't do that. In a lot of ways, it's, it's actually really cool. It feels very honest in a way because, and I'm, I'm so curious about how you're going to summarize this, because there's so many, <laughs> for lack of a better term, narrative dead ends where it's, it's just mm. Scout being a kid. And so you get a lot of scenes from her childhood that are super idyllic, wonderful, nostalgic kind of feelings. And then that gets juxtaposed to this terrible, terrible event that basically occupies the entire middle part of the book. But once that's over, it kind of returns to quote unquote normal. It feels like it's really grappling with that, with that fact that and it feels very true to reality where there for a lot of us. Mm. 
we're able or or just this is really just kind of how life works bad <coughs> happens bad <coughs> goes away life resumes and i think this book does it does a really good job at at painting that and painting how how hard it is to talk about these things and yes i don't think that ninth graders are necessarily able to pick up on that even though I guess it makes sense why teachers perhaps assign this book to ninth graders or schools assign this book to ninth graders because Jem and Scout are, they age a couple years throughout this narrative, but they're, they're like yeah. around 10 and 12 or whatever. They're around our age when we read it. So I'm guessing it's like, no, what? They're not. So it starts out, I think, so it's three years. I think Scout goes from six to nine for Scout. And I'll see if I can find Jem's age. But ninth graders are 14, 15. So that's like, it's a relatively big gap. Yeah. I wouldn't say even Jem at his oldest. I think at the oldest, he might hit 12. Well, but I'm not saying it's the exact. It's the point is that it's around the same age. And I think it's like, oh, the narrator is a kid. Our students are kids too. Ipso facto, they'll <laughs> love this book. I mean, I. One reason I think it probably gets read earlier rather than later is that it's a relatively easy read yeah. in terms of the language. You, you don't have to work very hard to read To Kill a Mockingbird. And it is, it is for many people, this is the great American novel. Like, mm. this is it. And so I think doing that, you know, sooner rather than later makes sense. But that said, like, so my junior year of high school was all American novels, and that's when we did Great Gatsby, which is probably the other big contender for the great American yeah. novel. And uh, Gatsby is also really easy to read. And um, you know what? I'm not going to dunk on Gatsby right now because it's been a really long time since I read it. So maybe I'm wrong, and it's actually spectacularly good. No. Uh, I remember <laughs> it being just kind of like middle of the road. It was okay. I had to read it for five fucking different classes. Really? Five? Yeah. What classes were you taking? I, I don't know. Gatsby looked in that moment as if he had killed a man. Anyway, this is all attention. Wait, but I can bring it back because one of the other things I found in my research is that, interestingly, this book, as opposed to Gatsby, hasn't really been as embraced by the academic community. Mm. Like, there's relatively little academic writing and research on this book. So it's this weird book where it's, like, both in the canon, but also, like, isn't taken as seriously by, you know, literary academics <laughs> as, for instance, The Great Gatsby, which I thought was really interesting. Like we've been saying, I think there's a lot here. And yeah, in terms of how I'm planning on summarizing this, I think we're going to have to have a shorter summary in which I just kind of introduce the characters and main points. Because like you said, this is very much like has a kind of slice of life feel. Yeah. With a few sort of climactic moments. I think it's more tied together by obviously the coming of age element, but also just kind of this theme of abuse. Yeah. <laughs> a theme of people using their power to 
take advantage of other people, I think is sort of the great overarching theme of this book. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're probably going to leave out the details about how randomly Dill and Scout get engaged. Yes. Which has no narrative point other than the fact that it's really cute and feels really true to childhood. No, I, I, I agree. So many of the moments are moments that I think are meant to build character. So I'm going to start by introducing our characters. So our, our main character and narrator, since this is told in first person, is Jean Louise Finch, who goes by Scout. And she's six years old at the start of the story. And uh, the story takes place over three years during the Great Depression in this small town in Alabama. And uh, she's... Really, the eyes through which we see all of this, so we get to see her grow up quite a bit. But the other character who I think is most important to the story in terms of how we understand the world is her older brother, Jem. Actual name, Jeremy. <laughs> Everyone has nicknames in this family. And he, I looked at that, he is, goes from 10 to 13. And their relationship is, I think, such an important part of this book, the brother-sister relationship, and specifically the older brother-younger sister element. So a lot of the things that we see Scout not necessarily understand or pick up on, we see Jem burning. And this is just as much of a coming-of-age story for him. And they are taken care of by their father, Atticus, who is a lawyer. And they call him Atticus and not Dad, <laughs> uh, which I think really uh, says a lot about his parenting style, which is very, he very much treats them like little adults mm -hmm. and is always very matter of fact about answering their questions, kind of lets them mostly do what they want <laughs> with, you know, some exceptions to keep them within bounds. And he is aided in his child rearing efforts. By Calpurnia, nicknamed Cal, who is the black woman he is employed to, I don't know, it seems like she does everything from cooking to cleaning to taking care of the kids, like, yeah, she's she the... runs this household, essentially. <laughs> and the other sort of major characters that we see come in and out, um, Scout and Jem's friend Dill, who you mentioned, who, uh, only visits during the summer. He's got an interesting parenting situation going on that I think, again, ties into the theme of the novel. But we can also discuss it more later. They've got this whole collection of eccentric, off-the-wall townspeople that come in and out of the story, like their neighbor, Miss Mwadi, who is around Atticus's age, never got married, um, and she's very much a friend to the children. But there's also the town gossip, Miss Stephanie, and just so many other colorful characters who really, this is one of those stories where as much as like, you know, every rom-com's like, New York is a character, <laughs> the town of Maycomb and all of the people in it, like, it's very much that is a character in this story, which again, it makes it very hard to summarize. So one of the big overarching threads that starts at the very beginning and goes to the final page is about Boo Radley, who is this very mysterious man who supposedly lives in a house further down uh, Gem and Scout's street. They've never seen him, but there's all these ghost stories about how he's been locked up in there by his father after he got into some trouble in his youth, and that he, you know, stabbed his father with a pair of scissors once. You know how kids do. And quite 
a bit of the early book is dedicated to their efforts to catch a glimpse of him. Mm-hmm. Or the pair of them and Dale reenacting the scenes of the Boo Radley stories. He's a character that uh, I think <laughs> symbolizes a lot, which makes it very hard to really, again, summarize this. <laughs> but there are some sort of mysterious things that start happening in their attempts to reach him. For instance, uh, that moment I mentioned earlier where they're trying to like go peek in the windows of the Radley house at night and someone starts shooting at them. <laughs> <laughs> and so the children have to run back uh, and they're trying not to get caught, and so they go under this piece of fence, but Jem's gotten too big, so he has to, like, squirm out of his pants and leave them behind. And in order to uh, not get caught, he has to then go back later to retrieve his pants before Atticus can <laughs> find out what he was actually doing. And when he goes back and finds them, even though there was a tear in them uh, when he left them, that's been sloppily stitched up. Hmm. Yeah, and the, and the pants have been like folded and placed on the fence. Yes. There's also and there's also the, sorry. No, I think you're about to just say the same thing. Go. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's also what I I've called the giving tree, where the <laughs> uh, where first Scout and then Gem, they both walk by this tree that has a hole in it. Um, it's like a knot or something, and they find things left in there like uh chewing gum uh something they call an indian head penny i think various knickknacks that don't really matter i'm sure if you wanted to you could dive into the symbolic meaning of each item but it's just stuff that is left there by some mysterious benefactor yes i think the most significant things that are left are two little dolls well not i don't know if they're dolls they're like carvings of yeah. a girl and a boy that look like Gem and Scout. And that's, I think, what really convinces them that this is being left for them. Because at first they think someone's just hiding stuff for themselves in there. And so there's a great de- deal of debate about whether they should be taking this and they don't know where it's coming from. But then they discover these little carvings and realize it's definitely being left for them. And so then they take the nice step of eventually they decide to write a cute little letter that's just basically like thank you and we'd like to see you they leave that in there and then like the next day they find the hole filled with cement mm-hmm. it, you, you didn't touch on this but but i'm sure and i don't know how much we're gonna touch on this but <laughs> the radleys apparently are kind of religious extremists and mr radley boo radley's father basically they their adherence to this this idea that pleasure in any form is a sin. Apparently, Mr. Arthur takes this step of filling the hole with cement and that... Or... Go ahead. Sorry, it's... So, Arthur is Boo Radley's actual name, but the person who fills the tree is his brother, Nathaniel, who's taken over now that okay, the dad okay. has died. You're right. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we got all the names right. But right. yes, I, no. I don't think it... it I don't really think... It, Again, it doesn't really matter because they're not so important as char- like at least the father and the brother aren't so important as characters as they are as symbols, which as right. you said makes this very hard to summarize. Right. But one of the uh things that this is one of those things where like Scout I don't think ever really fully realizes this to the extent that we see Jem realize it over the course of the book. 
But Jem very much goes from thinking Boo Radley is this, like, crazy ghost man to realizing what's being done to him. And especially after the tree is filled in, realizing that his brother at this point is continuing to forcibly keep Boo locked in and keep him suffocated in this house and keep him from having communication with people outside of it. That's all happening in the background. (laughs) Absolutely, like, not... There's a couple of moments where it breaks to the surface, but it's mostly you have to discover it by reading between the lines of what Jem is saying, as opposed to what Scout's thinking, because Scout is absolutely not getting any of this. So the other major plot thread that sort of starts happening, I want to say about a third of the way into the book, is that Atticus has been appointed to defend Tom Robinson, who is a black man who's been accused of raping a white woman, Naela Yule. And this is very controversial (laughs) for obvious reasons, seeing as this is the 1930s. Atticus has accepted this appointment and plans to do his best, and a lot of the townspeople are very upset that he is has agreed to defend Tom Robinson. And moreover, not just that he's agreed to defend him, but that he actually plans to defend him. Someone has that line somewhere in there, and Scout's like, what does that mean? Of course, if, he, if he's defending him, he's defending him. But of course, we're meant to understand that they want him to essentially not do his job and let, you know, whatever happens to Tom Robinson happen. Both Atticus and the children end up facing a lot of attacks and resentment from not only the other townspeople and their children, but also from within their own family, as their Atticus's sister, Aunt, who goes by Aunt Alexandra by Scout in this book, is not in support of this. And, you know, Scout gets into a whole fight with her cousin about it. And really, Jem kind of understands what's going on, but Scout doesn't really get, (laughs) again, a lot of what's happening. She knows her father's defending a black man, but she doesn't get why all of a sudden everyone's so angry at them and doesn't get why they're being bombarded with this kind of resentment and doesn't understand why Atticus says she can't fight back. I want to fight. I will say no more. So this is a... A big form of frustration for her. And the tension just kind of mounts and mounts as the story goes on and it gets closer and closer to the trial. In fact, at one point, fairly close to the trial, Tom gets moved into, like, I didn't fully understand. He's getting moved essentially from one prison location to another. And a group of local men try and take advantage of this opportunity. So Atticus goes to sit in front of Tom's jail cell like the entire night to make sure that no one comes and does everything anything and Jem is pretty nervous about this (laughs) and so he ends up taking Scout and Dill with him to check on Atticus that evening and they show up just in time to see a group of men come up clearly with the intent to lynch get in there and yeah lynch Tom and through the power of Scout's naivete (laughs) The day is able to be saved because at first when the children run up, the men are still intent on doing their business regardless of who's in the way. But Scout doesn't really understand what's going on 
and starts talking to one of the men in the crowd uh, whose son she knows and had previously brought over to dinner at their house and just starts very kindly asking him about his kid and how his entailment's doing. And this essentially shames the man into telling the rest to go home. And I will mention that the next morning, Scout does actually sort of realize what was happening and ends up having a total breakdown over it because yeah. it's like the retroactive fear. But shortly after this is the trial. Obviously, this is probably what the book is most known for in our popular consciousness. Uh, the kids end up going, even though Atticus tells them not to. And it's very much a presented as a he said, she said trial. But it becomes clear very early on um, that the Yules are lying, and Atticus is able to prove this a number of ways. So part of the evidence is that Mayla has had a bruise on her, which I was a crap. So Mayla was beat up, and she was bruised right. on the right side of her face, meaning somebody who was left-handed beat her. Yes. Atticus is able to very cleverly show that, one, Mr. Yule uh, is left-handed, and two, that Tom Robinson's sort of entire left arm uh, is got caught in, like, a, a grinder yeah. when he was younger, and yeah. it's non-functional. There's absolutely no way he could strangle her with it or hit her with it or, you know, do anything with it. He would have had to operate entirely one-handed. Yeah, and to and to illustrate that, it when he takes the oath, when he's trying to place his hand on the Bible, he literally can't. It's it's completely lifeless, and it keeps falling off. And he eventually just has to take the oath without putting his hand on the Bible, or I think he puts right. his other hand. On. Point is, he can't use his left hand. Yes. So over the course of the trial, this is revealed, and it becomes you know very clear that. There's absolutely no way Tom could have done what they're saying he did. And that it was probably like Mr. Yule who indeed beat Mayella and that it was Mayella who made it sexual advances on Tom. Also that <laughs> Bob Yule is probably the one who also raped Mayella. That's all coming out kind of under the surface. Again, Scout doesn't fully understand what's happening, but like because we're seeing the courtroom scene, a lot of it is much more easy to understand than some of the other things that are happening under the surface of this book. But uh, in the end, Tom Robinson is declared guilty, and Atticus essentially says he he never really expected to be able to win, but like it, the he was at least impressed that it took them a few hours to mm -hmm. reach that verdict. He's like, this is progress. Jem, Dill, and Scout are absolutely horrified by this. In fact, at one point, Dill has to leave the trial because he's so upset by the way the prosecuting lawyer is speaking to Tom Robinson. And so we very much get this contrast between the children's idea of fairness and justice and the adult version of those, which clearly has <laughs> no fairness or justice in it. But yeah, then life kind of goes on. No one liked the Yules in the first place, but they especially don't like them now. But, you know, Tom's still in jail. Atticus is trying to 
get uh, an appeal, but everything is kind of, to some degree, gone back to normal. That said, Bob Yule does threaten Atticus, and he carries out a number of other threatening acts against people involved. So, for instance, someone tries to break into the judge's house, and people suspect that it was him. Uh, he menacingly stalks uh, poor Tom Robinson's wife until her employer scares him off. It's So he's kind of doing bad things in the background, but... We get a little distracted by this when the news comes that Tom Robinson is now dead because he attempted to escape jail and was shot down by the prison guards. We'll talk about this more, but we should clarify that it wasn't simply that he was shot down. He was shot 17 times in the back. Oh, yeah. This was not like reasonable. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Like this was... Clear overreaction to everything going on. Yes. And again, it's it's worth mentioning that he can't use his left arm. So, like, it's described how he tried to climb over the fence and it, it, they claim he was moving so fast and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, it feels very relevant to yes. everything today. Absolutely. <laughs> and yes, Atticus overtly comments on the fact there was absolutely no need for them to do this. Yeah. So that's very much brought to the front of the narrative. Then, yeah, uh, things continue being normal other than people now gossiping about how he's dead. Towards the end of the story, there's this big Halloween pageant thing that the kids are involved in. Scout <laughs> is dressed up as a giant ham <laughs> because part of the pageant is to, like, demonstrate the... uh goods that come out of the county so one of those i guess is ham (laughs) scout is a ham this is relevant because she's got this big uh like chicken wire mesh costume around her body that like she can't easily get in or out of without assistance but as she and Gemma are walking home after the pageant they are walking back through this very like dark section a wooded area that's between the school where the pageant was at and their street and Jem hears someone following them, so they attempt to escape, but end up being overtaken by this person. And Scout's uh, narration of this is very disoriented because she's in her ham and can't <laughs> see anything. Yeah. But, you know, she can hear fighting in the background. Like, someone does, like, attempt to kill her, clearly. Eventually, she's able to get out of the ham and sees that Jem's been very badly hurt. This strange man shows up and picks Jem up and starts carrying him back to the house. It's revealed that this is Boo Radley Mm. and that the man they were attacked by was Bob Yule and that Bob Yule is also now dead. He has a knife stuck in him. A kitchen knife, to be precise. There is a lot of hubbub, (laughs) obviously. Yes. Uh, you know, the doctor's called, the sheriff is called, and although Jem is gonna be okay, he is badly injured, and he's been knocked out for now, so they try and figure out what happened through Scout's account, because, uh, Boo Radley is not speaking. Again, this isn't necessarily (laughs) 
it's pretty obvious, but not necessarily told to us directly, but it becomes clear. Like, at first, Atticus thinks that Jem is the one who killed Fabiola, but then the sheriff is like, no, he fell on his own knife. And Atticus is like, no, <laughs> that's no, clearly he didn't. You can't, like, lie. Like, Jem needs to take responsibility for his actions. I'm sure, like, they won't convict him, but blah, blah, blah. But it becomes clear that, no, actually, what happened was that Boo Radley killed uh, Bob Yule to stop him from attacking the children. So after they decide to run with the story that Bob Yule fell on his own knife, Scout walks Boo back to his house, where this is the last time she sees him, and then goes back to her own and... It's kind of a interesting end because yeah. it doesn't necessarily feel like, I mean, because this whole story is very slice of life, it's not like this feels like everything's been wrapped up, although a lot of things have been. But I think the big sort of thematic closure is that Scout goes to the Radley house. She's able to, I think, really for the first time fully understand this idea that Atticus told her very early on. About you never really understand someone until you're, you know, in their shoes. Yeah. And so standing there at the Radley house first for the first time, she really understands, is able to understand Boo and how he sees the world. Story ends shortly after that with, uh, yeah, Scout saying that she, telling Atticus that she understands Boo now and Atticus waiting with Jem until he wakes up in the morning. And that's the end. <laughs> That was a really hard summary to do. Yes. It's And not nearly as fun as our normal ones. <laughs> I don't know what it's gonna sound like to our listeners. It might sound like a complete mess. Yeah. And in a way, I guess it is, but it's just Harper Lee does such a good freaking job of placing you in the scene that you can't you really can't replicate it you just have to read the book honestly mm -hmm. there are some books that i think you can you can summarize and get the gist and you can live without reading them this book probably isn't one because a lot of the magic is in the way lee tells the story yeah i mean like there's so much i didn't even cover about like and i think part of it is too because it's so character centric mm -hmm. the story like so much of it is not necessarily the plot beats, but how the characters evolve and respond to what's going on around them. But, like, I didn't even talk about the rabid dog. Oh, right. Like, <laughs> there's that whole thing that happens. Or the fire. Miss Maudie's whole house burning down. <laughs> That's a whole thing that happens. Another thing that kind of got left out, but this book is so concerned about history. Mm. Even the beginning of the book is almost like a, a joke. The framing device for the whole novel is that it's basically Scout and Jem talking about what happened all those years ago. And they're debating about like, well, when when does the story really start? Scout argues that it starts with the Ewells. E Ewells? Jem argues that no, it actually started the summer that they first met Dill and became concerned about Boo Radley. And then like scout being sassy it's like well if you really want to really talk about the beginning of the story it goes all the way back to general andrew jackson from the war of 1812 the war of 1812 occurred mostly in alabama including uh where maycomb county is set 
there's so much history that gets referenced without necessarily explaining its importance. Mm. And I mean, obviously, there's the elephant in the room, I guess, is the Civil War and slavery, which is fascinating because I think Scout's narration mentions slavery a couple of times, but you never hear any character talk about slavery, even though we're only... They have an ancestor who fought in the Civil War who's still alive. And I just want to read this quote from James Baldwin that I think is really relevant here about history Mm. and the importance of history. History, as nearly no one seems to know, oh, Baldwin, sassy is great, is not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. It could scarcely be otherwise, since it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. The book gives us, early on, it it sort of gives us a, a very abbreviated history of the Finches, how they came to Alabama. And we learn about Simon Finch, who migrated from England because he was, quote, irritated by the persecution of those who called themselves Methodists at the hands of their more liberal brethren. And as Simon called himself a Methodist, he worked his way across to the Atlantic. And we also learned that Simon Finch actually owned slaves, which is... Well, yeah, even the way that the scout says it is ironic. She's like, so Simon, having forgotten his teacher's dictum on the possession of human chattels, bought three slaves. Yeah, even the narration is like, um... Right. And I and I think this also gets to part of why there are so many attempts to ban this book. The N-word gets dropped all of the time in this book. And the yeah. way black people are treated and talked about in this book is incredibly demeaning. But it's all born out of this history, this context that 60, 70 some years ago, one group of people in this town owned the other group of people as slaves. Right. Like, this is obviously, or was, well, no, in this book, I think it it still is, Confederate territory. And, you know, when the Civil War is brought up, it's very much in, like, they're still bitter about losing. Oh, yeah, there's the the lost cause mentality is very strong. I'm going to see if I can find it. But directly after we're told that Atticus is going to be representing Tom Robinson, and I think that this is one of those ways in which the book is is telling you that you should not be idolizing Atticus Finch. Yeah. It's mentioned how Atticus takes the kids at least once per year to visit the Confederate veteran and sort of rehash the Civil War with him. And right after that, uh, Atticus and Scout sit down and talk about how she can't fight people who are saying bad things about him over this. And he said, this is not like fighting the Yankees. Yeah. Because these people are our friends. Like, you're you're very much meant to understand that regardless of the fact that Atticus Finch is representing Tom Robinson, that doesn't mean that he believes in equality for Black people. Like, no. he. I think that what you really see here is that there's, like, levels of racism. And obviously there's the... Bob Yule variety, which is super very bad. Like, it's that comically, but not comically in like 
haha funny, but like darkly, comically horrible racism. Yeah. The sort of caricature that we've gotten used to of like, this is what a racist looks like. But this entire town is racist. Like there is not a really, there are not characters here who aren't necessarily. There are certainly characters that are significantly less so. And, you know, Atticus in comparison to Bob Yule is absolutely less racist. But he is very much, I think what Atticus is, is he has a very sort of structured mind and he believes in the court system. He believes in justice. He believes that no one should be punished for something they didn't do. And certainly he has respect for black people in a certain way. But he also has a line somewhere in here, um, and I'm going to regret not taking very good notes, <sighs> but he has a line about how he thinks it's sickening when people take advantage yes. of people who are lesser than them. And so he very much still sees black people as lesser, just, you know, he feels a certain responsibility to be a good person towards them. Is he better than Bob Yule? Absolutely. <laughs> I would take Atticus Finch any day, but there's still racism there. And I think then you can contrast that with the kids who are growing up in this racist society and are already displaying some racist tendencies themselves, because how could they not? I think you see the most evidence of how, you know, this is something that gets taught to people through them. Because, for instance, you see... Scout, who very much doesn't understand why she can't go visit Calpurnia at her house. She wants to. This is her, essentially, mother figure and friend. And she is like, why haven't I ever been to your house? I'd like to go. And Dill, who breaks down over how Tom Robinson is being treated. And so we're supposed to really understand the horror of adult racism, not just of the Bob Yule variety, but also of the Atticus Finch variety. Through seeing the children and seeing the ways in which those voices within them are already being squashed. Yeah, this book is so good at tackling the complexity of this issue because I I'm, I like that you brought up the quote from Atticus about how the we are dealing with our friends here and and we can even judge that because when the attempted lynch mob happens, he's very forgiving. And there's pushback from the kids about like, no, this this isn't right. That, like, this doesn't make sense. And you have that constant back and forth, whether it's questioning each other or questioning the adults or questioning why things happen, but also the understanding that like, in a lot of ways, Atticus is the moral center. And I'm not saying that like, he's the paragon of what society should be, but because that's who everyone turns to when there's an issue and something needs to be done. You mentioned the the dog scene where, where there's a dog who apparently has rabies. The cop shows up to shoot this dog. Uh, <laughs> the cop freaking hands his gun to Atticus because apparently Atticus is a sharpshooter and he's the one that's going to take care of everything. But there's questions about how even then we still have moments where there's a lot of pushback against what Atticus is saying. There are multiple times where Atticus talks about how we're taking baby steps, basically, of progress here, and mm -hmm. we just need to be patient. And Jem, in a way that feels very relevant today, pushes back and is basically like, 
no, that doesn't make sense. This is wrong now. We should do something now. I think it's also worth mentioning a couple of things. That first, the background of when this book was published, because it was published in 1960. This was a time when all sorts of protests were happening. The sit-in protests at restaurants in the South, the bus boycotts. It's also, I don't know how much this was influenced or how much this influenced the book, but the book was written during Emmett Till's death. What happened to Emmett Till, who was, right. uh, if you don't recall or don't know who that is, he was a black teenager in Mississippi who, from what we can tell now, this is not definitive, it seems like he was wrongly accused of flirting with a white woman. So a couple days later, three white guys kidnapped him, killed him, dumped his body in a river. And when they were taken to trial, they were acquitted of all charges. Literally a year later, they all admitted that they killed Emmett Till. So in a lot of ways, what happens to Tom Robinson in this book is the merciful version of what could have happened to him. And the book kind of implies that in a lot of different places. But the other thing I think we should also mention is that this book basically takes... It's from the perspective of the white people in town. Yeah. It's almost solely from that perspective. And I, I suppose we should also mention, if you didn't already know, Morgan and I are both white too. Even though this book tackles a lot of racial issues, is almost solely from the perspective of white people. And appropriately, it feels very segregated. Outside of Calpurnia, Scout, Jem, and others have little to no interaction with black people in this book. And that's why when Tom Robinson gets killed, things just continue on in the white part of town because who cares? It's just some black guy. That doesn't impact our lives. So yeah, it's it's all these elements coming together of like yeah. from this perspective that I do think is important. We should note that I really hate the term the great American novel. But you should not read this book thinking like this is the definitive book about <laughs> racism yes. in the South. But right. it is. I think it is important to see that perspective, to see how racism and all these different prejudices are learned. It's very much, and this is kind of borrowing a phrase from an article I found, but like it's very much about white racism. So that's also been one of the big critiques of it as this book that is, you know, the most commonly taught book to high schoolers. And I think that I hope that our, our listeners see as we go through that I it does have a lot of value. And I'm very much not in the camp that says it shouldn't be taught. But that said, in my own personal experience, this was really the book on race I read in high school. There was one other one that like briefly touched on it, I think, that was about like, the jazz era, but it, I don't remember it being hugely about race. It also wasn't a very good book, so like it hasn't stuck with me. But like I certainly didn't read a book that was about race that was by an actual person of color. And I, I do think that's a real problem, and that's why I very much support a lot of the initiatives that are going on right now that are like, yeah. okay, teach To Kill a Mockingbird, it's important, and you should. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about why once in a second, but Teach it paired with another book. Teach it 
paired with a book by Toni Morrison. Teach it paired by even a lot of people are talking about pairing it with this book, um, The Hate You Give, which is a YA contemporary novel that came out a few years ago now. I haven't actually read it. We'll make sure and link to it in our uh, description so you can find out more. But like, yeah, pair it with something that is is talking about the struggles of Black people from their perspective and giving a voice to those characters in a way that really the Black characters in this yeah. novel are not given. Certainly, we get them the chapter where the kids go to church with Calpurnia, and that's the closest we get to any sort of interiority or like attention given to the Black characters. But the kids are very much cut off from exploring that further, specifically by their aunt moving in to watch over them and kind of take over the handling of them from Calpurnia as much as possible. So I agree between the extreme use of the N-word. I believe somewhere I saw that the count was 34, but that feels small. I want to say it's more than that. Between that and the fact that, yeah, Black characters aren't really represented in their own voices it does fall down on the job on the other hand i think that this book is helpful in because you're seeing it through the eyes of kid and because scout isn't sitting there telling you what the problems are you're just being shown it you're not being told it i think that it helps actually get through to people in a way that sometimes being directly told things doesn't because I think people can be very defensive and so when they're just straight up told no you're being racist that's wrong then their like automatic response is be like well I'm not a racist yeah blah blah, blah. I have a black friend blah blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. which we all know is bullshit but like when you're shown it in this way, I think it can actually make you internalize it better. And so I do think that this book, especially for white students, yeah, could be a very a powerful, impactful book because it might make them realize how systemic racism is operating within, you know, themselves, their family, their other white friends, etc., but that's part of why I was very much pushing for, like, it being read older again. Because I think that the older you get, the more likely you are to pick up on those things. I'm not sure I understood the extent to which systemic white racism was being critiqued by this book when I read this at 14. It walloped me over the head with it at 26. <laughs> but yeah, obviously we're... <laughs> Also in a very different environment than we were when I was 14. So it is really, I think, still important in that way. But yes, absolutely fully recommend it being paired with a book by a Black author who actually can speak to that side of the story. And I did want to just kind of like briefly, because I'm not sure we'll touch on this again, but the history element, but also like the ways in which we see the kids kind of become institutionalized in the racist institution by this discussion that Jem and uh, Scout have about background towards the end of the book. Mm. Aunt Alexandra tells Scout that like she can't hang out with certain people because she's from a family with background. And Scout's trying to figure out what exactly background means. So she goes and talks to Jem. 
He says, I've got it all figured out now. I thought about it a lot lately, and I've got it figured out. There's four kinds of folks in the world. There's the ordinary kind like us and the neighbors. There's the kind like the Cunninghams out in the woods. The kind like the Yules down in the dump. And the N-word. <laughs> so there's that. And then Scout goes on to be like, I don't know. I don't think so. Like, I think that's wrong. She says, nah, Jem. I think there's just one kind of folks. Folks. And then Jem says, that's what I thought too when I was your age. If there's just one kind of folks, why can't they get along with each other? If they're all alike, why do they go out of their way to despise each other? And then he goes on to say, and I think a very impactful line, Scout, I think I'm beginning to understand something. I think I'm beginning to understand why Boo Radley stayed shut up in the house all this time. It's because he wants to stay inside. Mm. But I think this idea of, like, Scout (laughs) somewhat naively saying, I think there's just one kind of folks, folks, and then Jem saying, oh, no, there are categories. I think you see Jem starting to grow into the adult world and start categorizing the things and people the way that adults are taught to do. I don't know. That whole section between the background bit, which is obviously uh, Aunt Alexandra talking about how, like, because the Finches have history as landowners and also as slave owners, they are better than the poor white people. (laughs) And of course, then the poor white people in her mind are better than black people. And there's a whole hierarchy there. As seen towards the end of the book, Jem very reluctantly growing into that mindset, not necessarily because he fully believes that, but because that's what he's been taught. And with the way the world is, he doesn't understand how it could be otherwise. I think it was both very like impactful, but also very depressing. I, I had a different read of that scene. Because the way it came across to me is that Jem, the whole background conversation is so strained and makes absolutely no sense. There's no rules or criteria to define who has background and who doesn't. And I think Jem, when he says, I finally figured it out, his rationalization comes off as very strained of like, yeah, these are the four groups and that's how it all works out. And Scout's line, naive as it might be, cuts through all of that bullshit. And it's just like, at the end of the of the day, they're just people like us. There's not really anything different. And that's the thing that's why it's so important, I guess, to see the story through Scout mm-hmm. and Jem's eyes is because Atticus, in, in his sort of <laughs> aloof parenting style allows his kids to not basically perform their class or Mm -hmm. or their status. They can break out of those labels and those boundaries. They have this very particular point of view that allows them to see characters like the Cunninghams, who are a poor farming family, to smash those labels and boundaries down and equalize them all in a way that absolutely would not have been possible in this society otherwise. That's the continual conflict of people constantly labeling others and treating others differently without a good reason why. And that's what Scout keeps butting her freaking head against of trying to figure out why. And I think that's perhaps part of why this book didn't necessarily stick with me as a kid, is that we didn't we didn't have the adult perspective about race. And so 
a lot of this just kind of went over my head because I certainly I didn't have the terminology to understand it. And I didn't have the awareness to understand, like, why is any of this happening? Which is kind of part of the point when we see it from Scout's perspective. It's like, why is this happening? And when any time anyone is asked, they don't have a good reason. It's like, huh, this is strange. We should do something about it then. To go mm. back quickly on, on something else you said, the biggest flaw in this book is the the lack of representation of the black characters in this book. There's one very quick scene at the church that Calpurnia takes them to where we see this character named Lula who actually confronts Calpurnia and says, why are you bringing those white kids here? I wish we had seen more of that perspective because otherwise the same kind of nuance that we see in the white characters, we don't see from mm -hmm. the black characters. And that's the frustrating bit. But I, in a way it also works because that's just the perspective of the white people in this town. They paint the black people with a broad brush. So it's easy to label them and place them separately from yourself as a white person. Yeah, so I'll really quick touch back. Just to be clear, when I say like scouts being naive about the folks are just folks, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, like people are just people. But I think naive and like she doesn't yet understand, yeah, all the categories that adults create, whereas like that's something Jem is learning, not necessarily because he wants to or because he actually believes it, because that's just part of growing up is learning those categories. But yes, to address again the the black characters, I think that there's like, yeah, a few moments where you kind of get to see through the cracks of it and see some of the pain and actual characterization there. There's this really honestly, like somehow one of the most horrific scenes in the book is that uh tea party they have with the white woman towards the end which is after the trial and there's this woman there who's talking about her housekeeper some kind of servant yeah like her maid housekeeper person yeah who is black yes and so they're talking about how you know from their perspective all of the black people in town after the trial were not happy <laughs> So she's talking about hers, Sophie, her maidservant, cook, whatever she is, Sophie. And she said, you know what I said to my Sophie? I said, Sophie, you are simply not being Christian today. Jesus Christ never went around grumbling and complaining. And, you know, it did her good. She took her eyes off that floor and said, no, Miss Merriweather, Jesus never went around grumbling. And it's this. Let's be clear. That is not true. Jesus did a lot of grumbling. <laughs> he he was not just like, oh, very cheerful, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. He was, if you haven't read up on your Bible recently, give it another read because Jesus was not, a, not as nice of a guy as you remember. Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I've come not to bring peace. But a sword... I have come to sow discord between a man and his father, between a daughter and her mother, a man's enemies, will be members of his own family. 
But anyway, please. <laughs> Regardless of whether or not Jesus was complaining or not, it's this horrible moment where you can see through this that this poor woman, this poor Sophie, was very upset after the trial. Understandably, because the entire community had just affirmed to her exactly what it thought about people of her race. And then she has this white woman essentially slap her in the face and tell her she shouldn't be upset because, you know, Jesus, he was never grumbling or complaining. So it's like you do get a couple moments here and there, but then you also get like, I think one moment that for me this time around, I was very bothered by. And it's one of those moments where like, I, I'm not sure it was commented on, but when Scout and Jem and Dale go to the trial, they get there late enough that there are no seats on the ground level, which is where all the white people are sitting. And so they go up to the second level which is where all the black people are sitting, and they see the reverend from the church, from Calvary's church that they visited, and they end up getting given seats in the front row. Three black people get up and give them their seats, and they just take them like they're entitled to those seats. Yeah. Oh, man. And they don't even realize how their white privilege is operating right here, because, like, these could have been Tom's friends. They could have been Tom's family. We have no idea who they are. But, like, the kids go up to the segregated area for black people and are given seats and think nothing of taking those seats. Like, that's very clearly their own privilege operating. But do you think if people looked up there, white people looked up there and saw, you know, three white kids standing while there were black people sitting, do you think anyone would think that was okay in this time period? No, of course not. So, like, they had to be given those seats. There are certainly a lot of moments throughout the book where we see their white privilege operating but like i think it's a lot of those are commented on and i was kind of bothered that this one wasn't because it felt really <laughs> not good and that's where yeah having more different varying black perspectives might help bring that out or even like i don't know when dill is, is crying which again i think is such a really really impactful moment they go out and they talk to a white man who he is known around town for being a drunk, but it turns out he reveals he is not actually a drunk. He just pretends to be because he likes associating and talking with black people. And it's easier if he gives people an excuse for why he's like that. And he's able to get away with this because he like owns land and therefore doesn't need to be accepted by society. Like he has his own resources to get away with it. And, you know, he is able to sort of help Dill. But, like, I kind of wish that was maybe a moment where, like, a black character could have talked to Dill instead. <laughs> Might be a little more helpful. Yeah, I, I wonder to what degree that would have come across as anachronistic just because of the time period and of where they are specifically. We we have a literal representation happening in the court right now that any interaction with a white person has the possibility of getting you killed. I mean, there's a line in here where Scout realizes that, um, ah, yes, uh, quote, Tom was a dead man the minute Myella Ewell opened her mouth and screamed. Even now, even now, like that line, I remembered that, um, that scene from Central Park 
last year, I think, with the the mm, white woman yep. threatening to call the police on a black man who was just out there bird watching with full recognition of what it meant for a white woman to say a black man was threatening her. I get what you're saying. I just wonder. No, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) I agree that it might've been anachronistic. The only reason I thought of that specific moment is just because they have already been sitting up there with black people this entire time. They leave to go outside to cry. (laughs) And like, it would be, it would probably be the easiest moment to insert at least a little more characterization for black people or a black character while still keeping this in Scout's first person narration. But no, I agree it would have been complicated. And I do actually like the conversation they have for the most mm-hmm. part. I think that Dill is uh really enough, I think the most radical of the children. So he's very upset again about the way that the prosecuting lawyer is treating Mr. Robinson. You know, he's he's saying that he didn't act that way when he was questioning the other witnesses, and Scout's like, well, those were his own witnesses. And then he says, well, Mr. Finch didn't act that way to Miela and old man Yule when he cross-examined them. The way that the man called him boy all the time and sneered at him and looked around at the jury every time he answered, and then Scout says, and I'm gonna add it for language here. Mm-hmm. Well, Dill, after all, he's just black. I don't care one speck. It ain't right. Somehow it ain't right to do him that way. Hasn't anyone be got any business talking like that? It just makes me sick. And I think Dill's the person that we see most radically being like, no, <laughs> it doesn't matter whether he's black or not. But then the character they talk to, who I realize I haven't named, his name is Dolphus Raymond. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> but uh, he's talking about Dale to Scout, and he says, Things haven't caught up with that one's instinct yet. Let him get a little older, and he won't get sick and cry. Maybe things will strike him as being not quite right, say, but he won't cry, not when he's got a few years on him. And so, yeah, it's another recognition of the fact that these children's ideas about fairness and equality, all of those things are going to change inevitably as they continue to grow up in this society. Stay tuned for part two next week. On reread. See you then. Oh, I've been tired.